It's great to see each and every one gathered this evening in the way that we are. It's been a, certainly a blessed day in so many ways, and yet as we come together as the shades of evening are gathering and perhaps have already done so about us, what a serene and tranquil and peaceful chance is ours to turn our attention to a worship of the great God of heaven, to do so in the way we just prayed a moment ago. At least at this point in the service, for the next few moments, might I ask that we think for a few minutes about a lesson I've entitled, Jesus' Birth Month. We'll do that, perhaps, in light of the following. Denise and I were listening to a sermon that Don Blackwell delivered not too long ago. And as a part of that lesson, he made some statements. And after some study, I thought maybe that would be an interesting thing to, to share, at least to bring before all of us, having to do with the very subject of this lesson tonight. In what month was Jesus born? These introductory comments, I suppose, will set before us at least the nature of the question. It is certainly no great revelation that we live in this particular part of the world in which we frequently, during this time of year at least, hear statements much like this. Jesus is the reason for the season. Maybe you've heard that a number of times over the last two to three weeks or so. May I ask tonight, we maybe rethink that at least in the light of scriptural revelation. Doing so with the idea of asking, so does the Bible say what time of year Jesus was born? Does it come forth in any direct way and allow you and I to discern based on scriptural presentation the answers in likely fashion to that question? You'll notice as you come to the bottom parts of that slide, it is certainly the case we never wish to simply give thought to what the world or at least the world at large might proclaim. When it comes to any subject, if the scriptures have invested anything for us to say, we wish to know what that is. So if you have your Bible available, and I know that you do, why don't we turn to several passages tonight as we study together the question, in what month was Jesus born? I believe before we're finished, we'll be able to piece together some information passages of Scripture, and reach a conclusion. As we do all of that, though, I've built the lesson in four pieces. The first piece is going to be this one. Let me at least highlight what would be some common statements, some appreciations that would be reasonably frequent. You'll notice as you begin at the top, every one of us would be very quick to say, and I suppose even many others in the world who would not be Bible believers would at least have to admit that Jesus had a profound impact on life on earth. In fact, it wasn't very long after his life, a few hundred years I should say, when actually the calendar was built around him. You and I know that we now are soon to enter the year 2016 A.D., May we never forget that that A.D. is the Latin phrase, Anno Domini. It's medieval Latin, and it means in the year of our Lord. A priest in the distant past figured out a way to designate and arrange times based on either after the Lord was born or before He was born. You and I now live in this set of years called Anno Domini in the year of our Lord, and thus the very calendar and the numbering of it harkens us back to the profound impact Jesus has had on this earth. Those particular years prior to Him were at least for a long time labeled B.C., before Christ. Now may I be 
quick to say that we have now entered an age when many would love to strip Jesus out of any reference and so many have chosen now to label the years differently. I say label them differently primarily by the way they're called. For instance, now many would say the year will soon be 2016 CE, where CE means common era. No reference to Christ anymore. Those before his birth were BCE, before common era. The academicians and scholars of our day are now laboring hard to, in fact, put into place the numbering of the years that way without any BC or AD the one. May you and I hold on to the power and might of the Lord and the recognition of the calendar based as it relates to Him. But let's go even a step beyond that. Let's first perhaps state that the Bible does not explicitly come forth in any verse and tell us Jesus was born in this month. But again, so many times what the Bible does proclaim, it does so by virtue of an inference. That is to say, you and I can extract the truth by putting together passages and verses and draw conclusions based upon that. As you come near the middle of that slide, all of us know about the Christmas season. We just celebrated that in terms of a holiday two days ago. And we know that's the season of the year in which often Jesus is held up as a powerful reason in celebration of His birth. You'll notice December the 25th is selected every year as that day on which the supposed celebration of His birth takes place. But as you and I just noted, the Bible doesn't come out and say that it was December 25th or even in the ancient calendar's relationship to December 25th. And we'll find as we move through our study tonight, there is overwhelming biblical evidence that it was not December 25th. But beyond that, let's look at this. Many years ago, it seems around the 4th century, there was a selection on the part of December the 25th as the day to celebrate the birth of Jesus. Now, for many, many years prior to that, there were celebrations at that time of year that were pagan in origin. Celebrations that, in fact, made a great deal of direct relationship to various and sundry supposed gods. Well, someone made the decree, and likely it was the Roman government, to select this December the 25th as a way to, in fact, not only celebrate that, but to put it at a time when others would be well likely to go ahead and celebrate it without much thought to it. It is with that in mind. You and I know that there are thus some who when I ask, so when was Jesus born? Some might well say, well, maybe it was December the 25th. Others, with perhaps a bit more consideration of the Bible, would say likely it was in the springtime of the year. Maybe a time, maybe not unlike what our calendar would call April or May or perhaps even June. I believe we'll find tonight that too is not very likely. It is with all that in place, we then ask one more time, does the Bible, does the Word of God, allow us any direct conclusions that would strongly point to some other time of year? The answer is yes. Let's move on to the following consideration, if we might. It turns out that one key in relation to it will take us back to the nature of the Jewish calendar. In other words, what I've entitled the Jewish year. You and I know, of course, that we don't pay too much attention anymore to the Jewish calendar. 
although it is deeply embedded so often in the pages of the Bible. What do we know about the Jewish calendar? That is to say, when the Hebrews celebrated in terms of their year, in what way did they reckon it? In what way did they set it forth in terms of months and other features like that? It turns out that will have a brief bearing on our ultimate answer to the question. So let me devote just a moment, if I might, and ask us to review very briefly, admittedly, but very briefly, some aspects and facets of the Jewish calendar. First of all, it was a lunar-based calendar. Almost immediately, that might ask questions of you and me because you and I do not follow a lunar calendar. We follow a solar calendar. Our calendar is based on the movement of the sun. As it crosses various and sundry places in its orbit, we pass from season to season. And even our calendar says first day of spring or first day of fall. And it does that by virtue of the sun's location, not the moon. However, the Old Testament was such that a lunar-based calendar was what the Jews used in the days of the Old Testament. Do you remember with me a number of occasions when God gave commandment to the children of Israel to celebrate the new moon? Every new moon, the priests had certain offerings they were to make. We noted those in our study of Leviticus. Every new moon, there were certain offerings and certain festivals and certain remembrances that they had to make. Think about how that would then work. Each time the moon, and you and I know the moon, passes through its phases. There's a new moon, and then a first quarter, roughly a week later. And then roughly a week later after that will be the, the, basically the, the moon in which you see half of it. And then there'll be third quarter, and finally full moon appears. And then it proceeds right through the opposite cycle to go back to new moon again. When the new moon appeared, the Jews had to be watchful of when that was, and that's when the priests had to make offerings, the appearance of the new moon. When you think about that, we might ask, how long does it take the moon to pass from new moon back to new moon again? It takes 29 and a half days. And therefore, there came to be recognition of a month consisting either of 29 or 30 days. And as the Jews would count those off, of course, with a selection of those, then one by one, 12 of them would carry them through a full year based on their calendar. Now, it isn't difficult for you and me, though, to quickly see that with a year of only that many days, it would soon be out of step with the seasons. And so every now and then, they would all add an extra month to make up the difference so that their calendar would stay in sync with the seasons. That's the Jewish calendar. Now, be that as it may, might I ask you to notice, what were these 12 regular months in a Hebrew year? I've prepared this slide that you might at least briefly consider. I've listed the names for you. Some of them probably are familiar to us. The month Nisan, that was the first month in the Jewish year. Follow that with the month Zev. Follow that with Sivan and Tammuz and Ab and Elul and Tishri. You'll notice the following six. Heshvan, Chislu, Tebeth, Shabbat, and Adar. One by one, the twelve normally occurring months in the Hebrew calendar. 
Some of those are probably very familiar to us in that we recognize them. When the children of Israel left Egyptian bondage, God decreed to them that this is the first month in your year, and that was the month Nisan. That's how the Jews then recognized that as month number one. And in that month, you and I remember the Passover occurred. On the tenth day of that month, the lamb was to be taken up. It was to be slain the fourteenth day of that month. It was the fourteenth day of Nisan when the Passover lamb was slain. At that point, we then need to remember that was one of the three major feasts of the Jewish calendar. They celebrated the Feast of Unleavened Bread then the next seven days. All of that would have occurred in the month of Nisan. At that point, though, we remember there were two other major feasts. The next would occurred 50 days from the Passover, or the Sabbath correspondent to right after the Passover. That was that lovely festival you and I call the Pentecost. When we arrive at the book of Acts, it was the day the church began. Notice, in the Hebrew calendar, that would have occurred in the month seven, month number three. Fifty days again from that time in month number one. As you and I start piecing all of those things together, we might ask one final set of thoughts. Those months, of course, correspond to various times of our regular occurring year as well. It might be helpful to remember that month of Nisan, that first month on the Jewish calendar, that occurred at a time roughly correspondent to our Easter. So it would have been in either March or early April. And so you start counting from there. One by one, you can easily figure out then roughly the season of the year when each of the others would have occurred. For example, if you look, for instance, at Tevet, the one that's month 10 on that, that would have been roughly when we are right now. Late December would have been Tevet. You'll notice Adar then would have roughly occurred about February, and then the year would start all over again. Now, that Jewish calendar is a little bit interesting as we reflect on some additional questions. Having looked at these things, let's consider the following as well. So far, we've looked at the calendar and the current state of things. Let's consider for just a moment the matter of Jesus' birth. As we revisit Luke chapter 2, we remember that Joseph and Mary had made that trip, that excursion off to Bethlehem, because there was the place when the enrollment of the census was to be taken, because Joseph was of the lineage of David. Look at some of these things. We are told explicitly in Luke 2 verse 8 that when the master, when the Christ child was born, there were shepherds abiding in the field. That alone gives us a rather powerful clue. At this point, let's then think about the calendar that we just studied. In Ezra, chapter 10, verse number 9, we have an interesting meteorological clue. Could I ask you to notice it as I read that verse? Ezra, chapter 10, verse number 9. As we turn to that, might we notice that one of the features that we often see about portions or parts of the world is that there is a rainy season. We realize that today, say in the Far East, when certain things are always regarded. And even uh, Mr. Gilbert, when he shares with us about Africa, there's a certain season when it just rains all the time. Well, look at Ezra chapter 10 verse 9 for just a moment and notice what it tells us about that portion of the world where Jesus was born. 
Then all the men of Judah and Benjamin gathered themselves together unto Jerusalem within three days. It was the ninth month on the twentieth day of the month, and all the people sat in the street of the house of God, trembling because of this matter and for the great rain. You'll notice that the people were sitting drenched in the street. It was the ninth month. It was the time of rain. It had already come to be the rainy season in Jerusalem and its environs, and certainly that would have included Bethlehem. And so you notice that given that the shepherds were abiding in the field, the shepherds would long since, if it were the rainy season, have taken their sheep into the folds. This was not the season for sheep to be out in the field. This was the rainy season. It was only the ninth month. Now back on the previous slide, that was, of course, already to be appreciated. That was the month Heshvan. That was the ninth month. So because shepherds were abiding in the field, it strongly seems Jesus was not born in Heshvan. But might we note this, how long did that rainy season continue? And how long was it such that shepherds likely were not abiding in the field? From our knowledge of events in that part of the world, from Heshvan to Adar, the sheep were not in the field. For there was no grass for them at that time in abundance to appreciate, and it was the rainy season. That thus would seemingly strongly suggest Jesus was not born in the months numbered from Heshvan to Adar. That's five months taken out of the Jewish year. Now that leaves the other months, the other seven for us to consider. Let's look further. Perhaps that lesson text that we heard in our hearing tonight gives us some additional clues. Let's go back to Luke chapter 1 for just a moment. Luke chapter 1, verse number 5. As Luke set before us the record of the birth of Jesus and also that of John the Baptist, it again says in the fifth verse of that chapter, There was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias of the course of Abiah, and his wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Pausing at that point, might we note the following. We have the information before us that John's father was a man named Zacharias, but even more than that, he was a priest. He was a descendant of Levi. And we especially are told in verse number 5 that he was of the course of Abiah. Now that particular phrase alone may in fact pose a number of questions. What does that mean? At the bottom of this slide, I've attempted to fill in some of those details. What does it mean to say that Zechariah was of the course of Abiah? Well, the facts of the matter appear to be these. As you and I revisit the Old Testament, we find that in the days of David the king, something very unusual, something very interesting developed. It had to do with the priesthood. It's found in 1 Chronicles chapter 24. Would you please turn back there with me? We won't read nearly that whole chapter, but at least some observations I would wish us to make. First Chronicles, the 24th chapter. In that chapter, we have the following observation. Remember, there were two sons of Aaron that continued to live. Nadab and Abihu died because they offered strange fire unto the Lord. But the two younger sons, Eleazar and Ithamar, they continued to survive 
and there were many sons throughout the generations of them that obviously had some measure of right to claim the priesthood. By the time we reached the days of David, there were so many of those descendants that David divided them into courses, 24 courses. Interesting number, it did. 24 courses. And the way in which they're listed begins in verse number 6 of 1 Chronicles 24. And Shemaiah, the son of Nethanel, the scribe, one of the Levites, wrote them before the king and the princes and Zadok the priest and Ahimelech the son of Abiathar and before the chief of the fathers of the priests and the Levites, one principal household being taken for Eleazar and one taken for Ithamar. Now as we look at these in a moment, all 24 of them are now named and 16 of them came from Eleazar and 8 of them came from Ithamar. Here's the procession. Now the first lot came forth to Jehorib, the second to Jediah, the third to Harim, the fourth to Seorim, the fifth to Malchijah, the sixth to Majam, the seventh to Hakkaz, the eighth to Abijah, the ninth to Jeshua, the tenth to Shechaniah, the eleventh to Eliashib, the twelfth to Jakim, the thirteenth to Huppup, the fourteenth to Jeshebaib, the fifteenth to Bilgah, the sixteenth to Emmer, the seventeenth to Hezer, the eighteenth to Opsis, the nineteenth to Pethahiah, the twentieth to Jehezkiel, the one and twentieth to Jachin, the two and twentieth to Jamul, the three and twentieth to Deliah, the four and twentieth to Maaziah. Twenty-four orderings of the priests. Could I ask you to notice carefully verse number 10 with me again? The seventh to Hakaz, the eighth to Abijah. The eighth of the courses fell to Abijah. And when we arrive at Luke chapter 1, verse number 5, it says that John the Baptist's father was exactly of that course. Now, in the New Testament in Greek, it's written Abijah, but that's Abijah. So now we know something about the particular numbering in which Zechariah's father actually fell. It was the eighth one. Now, as we also revisit further in the Old Testament, you'll notice that as those particular courses of 24 served in the temple, something else we might notice. How long did each one of them serve? Well, you'll notice in 1 Chronicles 9.25, we're told they served one week. Now we're getting somewhere in terms of appreciating the pieces. The year started in the month Nisan. Each week, a new course served throughout the full first half of that year, and then they'd start all over again. Now, knowing that Zechariah's father served in the eighth course, all we have to do basically is note he would have served in the ninth week, starting again in late March or early April. So putting those together, you now notice that Zechariah would have served in the month seven. One of the weeks in the month seven would have been his week. Isn't that interesting? As you and I revisit Luke chapter 1, what happened during that week? While Zechariah was serving as the priest, we remember that he was told by the angel that he and his wife, though aged they were, were going to have a son. It would seem likely, based on the way the text is written, that when Zechariah went back to his home, his wife became pregnant at some time within the next couple of weeks. Sometime very soon after he finished his course, 
That would have meant that Elizabeth became pregnant with John sometime likely in mid-June, perhaps late June. Putting all those things together, where does that leave us? We remember that then nine months later, John the Baptist would have been born. So all we have to do is now add up the months. Where does that take us in terms of the birth of John? Well, it's easy to notice. That would have made John born likely, as you can see, in about the month Adar or perhaps the first month Nisan. But isn't it amazing that the angel had already made statements to you and to me furthermore. We know how much older John was than Jesus. Only six months. So indeed, if it was true that John was born, and again, either the twelfth or the first month, that would have meant Jesus would have been born either in the sixth month or the seventh month, one or the other. It almost certainly has to be one or the other of them. Now at this point, as we give thought to them, that would have brought it correspondently to either our late September or early, or early October. Almost certainly Jesus was not born in what we would call December. The evidence seems to strongly point that He was born probably in late September or more than likely early October. Interesting as you consider the thought with me of the birth of Jesus at that time of year. You'll notice in Luke chapter 1 verse 36 is that verse to which I would point us as we think about that six-month interval. That's not left to you and me to guess. It was the angel who informed that there was to be six months between the birth of John and the birth of Jesus. Not only that, with our conclusion having been reached pointing us to this month of Tishri, the seventh month, or the sixth month Elul, might we perhaps note also the following. The birth of our Savior, in terms of its timing, there is really much more that might be said. Because might we also ask, some would be quick to ask, in what year was Jesus born? Do you and I know that? That's an entirely new lesson and one we may consider in the not-too-far-distant future. But may I say that at this point, you and I can rest with such ease upon thought of the verses like Galatians 4, verse number 4. Could I ask you to consider that as we draw to the last segment of the lesson tonight? But in the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son, made of a woman, made under the law. That phrase, the fullness of time, carries with it such an amazing consideration. Because notice what that word means. That word has to do with completeness. It has to do with fulfillment. It has to do with contents being full. It's almost as if as the years passed from the time of the creation unto the coming of the Christ, God was waiting for the propitious time, the perfect time, the right time. Jesus wasn't born too early. He wasn't born too late. It was exactly the right time in the orchestration of the events of time for His work to proceed exactly as the God of heaven wished it to do. Now you and I could ask many things about what made it the right time. Why was that particular year the perfect one for... Mary to give birth to Jesus. 
Why was that year the absolute right time? Why couldn't he have been born two years earlier? Why couldn't he have been born five years later? You and I would say neither of them was, was possible. The perfect time was the very year Jesus was born. What made it so? Again, a different lesson. We'll have to develop that. One of the things we could say, what happened during the period of time between when the Old Testament closed and when the New Testament began? When the book of Malachi ended, people were looking forward to the coming of the Messiah. One called after the consideration of Elijah, and they were waiting expectantly for His coming. And suddenly, when the New Testament opens with the book of Matthew, we find the events being put in order. The time has come. What happened in that intervening period of years? There was about 430 years between when Malachi occurred and when Jesus was born. What happened in those years? May I submit to you that there were no less than three things that seemingly were very strongly evident to the fullness of time. We'll look at them again in the not too far distant future and see how did God orchestrate these events so that it was the perfect time for Jesus to come. We can be assured that He did it. The completion, the fulfillment of those things. Maybe one last thought. You and I know that then, as we began the lesson tonight, this reason for the season being Jesus... It might be we've concluded Jesus is really not the reason for the celebration of December 25th. He was not born that day. That's the wrong time of year. But could we at least say this? We must then be a bit cautious to hold high religious celebrations surrounding December 25th, for that wouldn't be biblically accurate. But as far as sharing gifts and having family get-togethers and times, that's perfectly fine in a season like this. It doesn't have religious overtones, and you and I wouldn't be proper to make it so. Nowhere within the pages of the New Testament do we find authorization for celebrating Christmas in a religious way. We don't take the Lord's Supper just because it's Christmas, for instance. We don't do things that otherwise would attach it to something religious. That would not have biblical authority. But what you and I do realize is that in other places of the Bible, such as 1 Kings 12, God held very sternly in sentence those who tampered with and put religious overtones on things for which there was no authority. Jeroboam did that, and Jeroboam paid a heavy, heavy price. You and I are excited then to celebrate Christmas the way we do. Not as a religious thing, not as a religious observance, but as a simply a civil holiday. Surely in light of those things, let's conclude our lesson tonight like this. We have at least asked the question, does the Bible say when Jesus was born? It doesn't come out and explicitly say it, but it provides for us given that Zechariah, John the Baptist's father, was of the course of Abijah and he would have served in the month of June. And we know again that his wife, Elizabeth, became pregnant. The text suggests very shortly after his course was finished. All evidence seems to point that Jesus was born in late September or more likely early October. As we think about that fact, that means he wasn't born in the springtime of the year, at least by our reckoning either. Isn't it fascinating to note what the Bible does have to say to you and to me? 
tonight as we close this lesson, we do so with the following thought. Aren't we thankful for the Bible? Aren't we thankful that we have the infallible, perfectly accurate Word of God? Tonight, as you think about our study of the month in which Jesus was born, maybe we can then say this, if the Bible is accurate in every statement it makes on things like that, shouldn't it be reliable even when it talks about directly spiritual things like what do you have to do to be saved? And you and I know it's accurate in everything that it says on any subject. It says that to be saved, a person must believe in Jesus, John 8, 24. A person must repent of his or her sins, Luke 13, 3. A person must confess the name of Jesus, Romans 10, verse 10. And a person must be baptized, Acts 22, verse 16. If you haven't attended to that tonight, why don't you do it? It would be a blessed night for you. It would be a time for the angels to celebrate. May I say, if you have taken care of that, but you have fallen away, you haven't been faithful, why not come back to your first love, Revelation 2.5? Why not come and ask for prayers of brethren to God on your behalf and let us do that? James 5.16 still says, Confess your faults one to another and pray one for another that you may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Tonight, if we could be of any assistance to anyone, we would urge you to come and do so at once while together we stand and while we sing.